Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and how to successfully navigate the world of Stack Overflow. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going this week, Joe? Pretty good. How's it going? Uh, doing good. Made some progress. Um, yeah? Yeah. And we have a special guest this week, Charlie Chapman, developer of an amazing new white noise app called Dark Noise. Charlie, welcome to Project Update. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, welcome to the show. So let's just dive in. We don't, neither Dave or I are really going to grill you too much, but we're just curious about the app. I've been uh, beta testing it all summer, and it's just kind of fun to watch the changes come through. And you, you released it last week, so we want to hear about how that went. But I guess let's start with kind of what Dave was thinking. Why this app? Like, why, why make a white noise app? Well, um, I mean, ultimately, I just wanted to, I wanted to learn iOS development. And so I was trying to pick something that was simple enough, didn't have a whole bunch of server side or any server side stuff, because that's what I had done previously. Um, and I wanted to like purely focus on UI kit and kind of learning that whole stack. And so in my big list of ideas that I always keep, because I'm a nerd, um, though, a white noise app was something that was sitting there from basically the time whenever I first switched to iOS, like, I don't know, three or four years ago or something. Because weirdly, despite there being like thousands of white noise apps in the store, there wasn't one that like hit the exact thing I wanted, which mm -hmm. I think ultimately was probably kind of based on what I had on Android. Um, and so it was always this kind of thing that sort of bugged me, but I found one that was good enough and I kind of live with that for forever. And so as I was going through that list of things, I thought, this is a cool idea where I could make something. It's kind of simple. I wasn't really thinking in terms of it being some big open uh, market that I could make a whole bunch of money on. It was more like I could spend a whole bunch of time to try and make a really well-polished iOS-style application, and I wouldn't have to worry about a whole bunch of server-based stuff or anything like that. So that's really ultimately why I landed on a white noise app in the first place. Okay. So are you a developer outside of this? Yeah. Yeah. So I, well, let's see, I graduated in 2011 with a computer science degree and mostly I've been on the web slash uh, .net track since I've okay. been doing that. I actually had a, a little two year stint there where I was doing uh, windows phone development and uh, mm -hmm. windows eight tablet development. <laughs> so yeah, it honestly, it was a really cool platform and there was a lot of cool stuff in there, but it was also like, three years or four years behind uh, Android and iOS at the time. And so it was, it was an interesting experience to say the least, but, but that gave me a like taste of mobile development. And I just, I really, really liked it. There's a lot more focus on um, fluidity and animation. And those are things that I personally just really enjoy and <laughs> hopefully kind of shows in the app that I ended up making. Um, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. I, so like, before I had uh, gone into college, I was kind of trying to decide between, well, at that time I was trying to decide between going animation and like ultimately I liked the idea of working at a place like Pixar or something or going into marketing where I thought I could maybe do some stuff like that. Um, and then ultimately the dean of the computer science program at the school I ended up going to convinced me to switch over to the computer science track, which I think ended up being a pretty good uh, career move on my part unintentionally um <laughs> so i always had this sort of 
animation obsession and I always kept it going as a sort of uh that was always what my side projects were I, I I'll do like motion graphics and stuff like that um little projects for like churches or local marketing companies or something like that so it was always a skill that I enjoyed but this doing an app on the side gave me the opportunity to sort of meld all of those things together and that's how I ended up making a white noise app that's supposed to be about audio but also ends up being a lot about uh, graphics and uh, animation and stuff like that. So that sort of explains yeah. the end result there a little bit. Yeah, so feel free to not answer this if it's like a secret, but how did you make those animations? Are those using native frameworks or are those just little videos that are looping? So um, so I built all those in After Effects and then okay. there's an open source library uh, maintained, I think it's maintained by... Uh, uh, Airbnb, but it's called Lottie, if you've heard of that. And Mm-mm. the way I heard about it is because uh, it let you take After Effects animations and pull it into uh, the web through JavaScript. But then they also have an Android and iOS, and I think they even have more um, SDKs where you can pull in, essentially, they're just little JSON files that you output from After Effects, and then it turns those into native animations on whatever platform you're on. So in the case of iOS, it's turning them into core graphics. So they're actually like core animations that yeah. are generated off of a really, really tiny JSON file that's output from After Effects. So those animations take up immensely less space than the actual PNG representations of all those images I also have in there. <laughs> so you've, you've told us why this app. So now my question is, why this app this well? Like this is, this is an exceptionally polished mobile app. It's, it's, feels weird for me to say this is a beautiful extremely well done white noise app which just sounds silly but it's great um and so the question is like like it first app development you're trying to learn the 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 things why do it to this level well first i really appreciate that that uh that feels really good to hear um I think, like I said, I just love doing this kind of stuff. I also am a amateur wannabe designer and amateur wannabe um, motion graphics artist. I'm an amateur wannabe lots of different things. And mm-hmm. in my real jobby job, you don't really get to focus on that kind of stuff because it doesn't really make business sense. Like people appreciate it, but people don't necessarily pay for it. Or in the case of a lot of apps I do in the consulting space, what you're really providing is a nice enough way to access the service that they're selling. Right. So focusing on all these little polish bits aren't something that make a whole lot of sense. So as soon as I got going on this, I realized nobody's paying me for this. Nobody is, has a schedule or a timeline for me on this. So I can spend as much time as I want on all these little weird polishy detail things that I personally just enjoy doing. So I think ultimately that's, why it ended up being the way it is is i kind of had like some chains released off of me and i could just spend as much time as i wanted doing all of these things um, so there was nobody there to tell you no yeah yeah essentially <laughs> right <laughs> no i i uh i mean periodically you find an app where you say wow this is really well written like it, it's fast it's clean it's got a good clean design and and that's cool and you like it but then another time you find an app where it's like somebody lavished love and attention on this thing for a long time. Like how long did it take to write from kind of first commit 
to or or maybe from first design to release on the app store yeah i was actually just looking at this the other day so the first commit i made was in february of this year and right now it's september 3rd so however many months that is um there was there was a one year or a one month break in there uh, where I watched all of Game of Thrones and literally never opened the <laughs> opened the project, but that's so, healthy too. Yeah, well, uh, that's debatable. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but like uh, I started it a little bit before that, before I had even set up a you know Git repo for it, and I don't know the first however many months were probably more so spent on trying to just figure out how to make iOS stuff work at all. Um, Mm -hmm. But I did have the advantage of the company I worked for let me switch over to an iOS project despite having zero experience. And (laughs) all the people on my team have just like let me leech knowledge off of them uh, over the last however many months. And so I feel, I I sort of feel like I've cheated because a lot of people will like DM me and be like, hey man, how'd you learn? Like what books did you read or how did you learn all this stuff so quickly? And I'm like, I kind of feel like I cheated the system a little bit because I just stole all the knowledge off of people who've been doing this for years and years. And I could come into the office and just ask a little question and they were more than happy to like talk through the details on stuff like that. So I don't really have good advice for people whenever they ask that because that's such a weird, unique uh, situation to find yourself in. But Joe, as we've previously discussed, learns a lot through books. Like he will sit down and work through knowledge to then gain that knowledge. And I'm much more of a guru-based learner. Find me somebody who knows, who can just be there to help course correct and things. And then I'll dabble a little bit in a book here and a little bit here. But in the end, I need a human being that has the knowledge that can keep me from going completely off the rails. And it's a really effective way to learn. There are also multiple ways to find those. It doesn't have to be somebody you work with. So I don't think it's cheating. Yeah. Yeah. Cheating is the wrong word, but you know what I mean? Like uh, it's, it's a really hard thing to find is somebody who's willing to give you the time and already has a relationship with you that can just sort of help you along the way in short little bursts over a long period of time. Um, Yeah. But yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of like you, like I, I don't really, get a whole lot out of books not that i don't get anything out of them but i will learn 10 times faster by banging my head against trying to solve a problem than i will reading about it in the first place because syntax and like uh small details like that they just like go through one ear and out the other like i'll forget it almost immediately whereas abstract Mm -hmm. concepts and like trial by error and stuff are the things that i'll hold on to for a long time yeah i'm definitely it's not that I'm different in that regard. Like, it's not that I get more out of books. It's just that I'm kind of obsessed with books. Like this year, I decided I'm going to read. I'm going to reduce the amount of reading I do on a personal level. And my goal is to read under 25 books for the year, which sounds kind of like a weird New Year's resolution. Like I'm going to stop reading 50 or 60 books a year. And I've totally failed. I've Holy already cow. read 37 books. <laughs> like I'm, <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a problem. But yeah, there's uh, Dave and I had done a previous podcast before this, and it was kind of a recurring theme on that show of Dave calling me out for spending too much time on tutorials and books, particularly in the VR stuff. But, uh, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm getting better at that for now, although I did just buy the new Ray Wenderlich Swift UI and combined book. Yeah, see, it's the, funny. Like, I wish there, there's a part of me that wishes I was more 
into that because I feel like that type of learning can get you out ahead of a lot of problems and mm -hmm. you kind of know the quote right way of doing things uh whereas you know if you look at the like wake of destruction behind me in terms of code who knows <laughs> how i solved a lot of these problems like and i've already forgotten probably half of those so i'm one of those people who's just sort of blazing a trail in a sort of dirty ugly way everything is based on the actual end product itself which is great until you're on a team with somebody else and then they look at it and they're like, what in the world is this? <laughs> so I, there's definitely uh, advantages and disadvantages to both. Yeah, for sure. One of the things I really like about their books is the fact that they, each book is written by multiple authors and multiple technical editors. So you will have a, a section of three or four chapters about how to solve a problem this way by one author and then another section with a totally different approach. Oh, that's it's not like they're working with the exact same methodologies. Um, so you, it's more like learning a reasonable way or multiple reasonable ways to solve problems rather than a correct way. And I get a lot more from that, being able to abstract the differences between that. And um, I don't see that with a lot of other technical books. Like if you read stuff from like Pact Publishing or O'Reilly, it's all very samey. Um, less opinionated, but the Ray Wenderlich stuff is very memeified and opinionated and huh. you know, just kind of fun to read. I do like his, I like his website a lot. Like all the stuff I have read of his, uh, I have really enjoyed. And I kind of get mm -hmm. a similar vibe as what you're talking about. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Most of the books start out to, as a couple of blog posts on the site that they release publicly. And then they kind of do the more in-depth stuff into a book or the video courses. I don't get as much out of the videos. For some reason, my my mind just shuts down as soon as I start watching a video <laughs> like that. I'm the same way. I know a lot of people, they learn way better that way, which makes a lot of sense. But for whatever reason, I'm the exact same way. If it's not written in an article, it's like I'm skipping around trying to find that one little thing that I'm looking for. Because if I try to watch the whole thing, my brain will just shut down after two minutes. And I'll realize yeah. I've been listening for 10 minutes and I didn't get anything out of that. Yeah, whereas with an article or a book, I can really go at my own pace and highlight stuff and take notes. And, you know, I, it could be a, a 10 minute article that I spend 45 minutes on because I'm trying different things in playgrounds or right. Xcode along the way. You just don't get that from a video because you're like trying to keep up or you're constantly pausing it. And, yeah. <laughs> Mapping yeah. one of my mouse buttons to the video pause play command so that I can <laughs> oh, pause, yeah. type some text, unpause. Okay, two. 30 seconds pass, got to pause again, do it. It's mm -hmm. it's annoying, but sometimes I can I can manufacture a fake guru out of the video person. Yeah. That so that, that is the part that I do get out of the videos. Like I did that Udemy course on Swift UI a while back and the actual content of the course, like the actual written code could have been explained in a couple of articles, but hearing him figure it out as he went along was the valuable part. And you just kind of like talking to himself, talking to the viewers throughout. So small courses like that are helpful, but you know, for the most part, I'm going to stick with reading what I can. Yeah. Another thing, which I, I don't watch enough videos, so I, I'm imagining you get this out of videos, but um, at my company, we pair program all the time, which I could talk about for way too long and it's not really that interesting. But one of the interesting things about that experience is you get to watch somebody else 
do the sort of mundane work workflow, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And watching mm -hmm. somebody like navigate Xcode, especially Xcode, because it's so different than everything else, that yeah. was incredibly helpful because like yeah. the week before I started on that team, I was like, okay, I'll download Xcode and start playing around. And I was like, how do you do this? What do you mean everything's not a tab? And when you click on something, it only opens. And now there's, that's the thing that's open. And there's not like 20 tabs up at the top. And it was very, very weird uh, switching over to that. And so I'd imagine watching those videos, you get kind of that same experience where not only are you getting their thought process and the actual thing that they're teaching you, but you're watching them navigate Xcode or run the simulator and see the weird behavior you might get in there or whatever. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's the other fantastic part about video is, is seeing it in use, watching the actual mouse movements, you know, where, what button are they hitting? Oh, there's three different ways to invoke this, but there's this little button that's poorly labeled in the corner that does yeah. exactly what you want every time. Fantastic. Thank you very much. Do they, so do they do the thing where during a screencast it pops up, uh, the keyboard shortcuts that they're typing? Do I don't think so on the Ray Wenderluck side. I don't think so. Some of the Udemy courses, I've seen that. Yeah, like I, so everything I know about motion graphics, uh, <laughs> speaking of watching videos, everything I know from that is from video tutorials, like Video Copilot yeah. and Red Giant people and stuff like that. And they always have that on. And I've learned so many keyboard shortcuts because of that. Because a lot of times I'm like, I don't know how to do open whatever window they just opened, and I have no idea what it's called. But if it pops up in the bottom, I, you know, I can figure it out eventually. Yeah, there's even in Blender, there's a presentation mode feature to automatically oh, yeah. start showing shortcuts while you're recording because it's just such a common thing. And there's a, a WWDC session from a couple of years ago. I keep meaning to go back and find it again. That was literally an entire session just about keyboard shortcuts. It was, <laughs> it was just like power using Xcode, but independent of any project. It was just, you know, quickly tabbing through code and bringing up inspectors and removing inspectors and hiding and showing things and jumping around. And it was all keyboard shortcuts. And I sat down and made two pages of notes off the first, <laughs> like, 15 minutes of the presentation and just, like, dedicated myself to, okay, I'm going to learn, you know, a pair of these a day. Mm -hmm. Just just practice this one thing. Commit until them I to can muscle do it. memory. Yeah. Or, or at least yeah. just awareness so my brain has a chance of pulling it out from someplace. That's funny because I went to a .NET conference pretty early on in my career. And the session I wanted to go to was full. And so then I had to kind of do that thing where you bounce between sessions and they're all full. And then you just land in one because that's what you have and that's what has room. And uh, I ended up landing in like, it was like keyboard shortcuts or, you know, navigating Visual Studio. And I was like, oh, this is going to be boring. I guess I'm just going <laughs> to sit here and do something else or get work done. And I ended up with the same thing. I just had pages of notes like, oh, my gosh, look at all. There's like multiple copy paste buffers. And there's how this is how you do multi cursor. And yeah, I had the same experience where I came back to work. And of all the things I learned, that is the thing that was the had the biggest impact on my work. Yeah. There was another great yeah. one, I think from the same year where um, somebody did a session on all the various low level like data management APIs that most people haven't heard of or ever use, like NS counted set, <laughs> um, which is a fascinating little structure where you throw things into a hash table 
but it keeps a count of the number of times you add something to the hash table. So if you've got a list, a, a, a list of items with multiple instances of a particular element, you can throw it in there and get back out a unique list with the number of times that each thing appeared in the original list. Mm. It's like cram back out. Thank you. Done. I, Man, like, I did so much. I wrote so much crap to get that working in FileMaker a couple of years ago. <laughs> FileMaker. Yeah. yeah. Dave and I both have a a long history with FileMaker. I'd love to pretend that I'm cool enough to know what or to have known what that was whenever that randomly hit the news a couple of weeks ago. But other than <laughs> hearing the name, uh, I couldn't have told you what it was or what it did before that. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's basically I mean, as they describe it now, they've they've gotten really corporate. They describe it as a workplace innovation platform, but <laughs> it's a horrible, it's horrible synergistic nonsense. It's actually just a way to make custom databases, and they've got a really good WYSIWYG layout interface and a good scripting editor and a way to write complex calculations. And it's basically, I hate to put it in this term because it's the wrong way of thinking about it, but it's the Apple version of Microsoft Access only. Right. Access is the Microsoft version of FileMaker, to be correct. But FileMaker has been around for, what, like 40 years. And uh, it's pretty much how I made 95% of my income since 2011. Oh, holy cow. Consulting work using FileMaker. And uh, Dave, the app that Dave makes as part of this show and as part of his business is a, a database design analysis tool for FileMaker developers. So there's a really complex XML structure that FileMaker files can spit out and then his application can run analysis and do different stuff with that. Um, basically, like f- the FileMaker file itself, everything is in a single binary file structure. It's, you know, it's all proprietary and kind of right. locked up, but it's incredible what you can do with it. And, you know, I can make basically a completely custom piece of software for a small business for you know, one-tenth of what they would be getting charged for a native app or for a series of web apps or things like that. And usually in one-tenth the time as well. Huh. Um, so it's really pretty popular in small businesses, nonprofits, a lot of political offices, a lot of political campaigns, uh, just kind of everywhere. It's one of those things that nobody knows about, but I mean, you'd be hard-pressed to find like if you go into any office building, you probably walk through a floor and there's five offices there. At least one of them is using FileMaker to run their business. That's crazy. But just it's one of those things that nobody knows about because it's just a corporate thing. Right. You don't, you'll see too many individuals just using FileMaker because it's expensive. It's not really meant for that. So is it running on a server, like a, a Mac server somewhere? Yeah, it can run on Mac or Windows. It's ideal to run it on a Windows server. Okay, that um, makes more sense. You can run sense. on Mac as well. Yeah, so they've got a server client. They've got Windows and Mac uh, versions. There's a web version. There's multiple ways to publish to the web. And there's something called FileMaker Go that works on iOS, but there is no Android solution. You're just supposed to use the website for that. Ah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's kind of, it's the sneaky, it's a wholly owned subsidiary of Apple. So, yeah, yeah, they were explaining all of that, you know, whenever all that news about mm-hmm. them pseudo rebranding popped, that they were <laughs> they were a 
They're like one of the only uh, separate companies under Apple for a long time, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now there's yeah. there's a couple more now though, aren't there? There's like that bed bed company or whatever. Yeah, I don't know. Bed company. The one with the weird like center. Yeah. It's, uh, what is it called? Yeah. It's not Rabbit. It's I don't remember what it's called. But yeah, it's it's like a a bed sensor. I don't think they sell mattresses themselves, but it's something that goes under your mattress. Maybe <laughs> I haven't really looked into it. But yeah, from what we can figure out about FileMaker is that Apple leaves them alone because they're profitable every quarter. And there's always been kind of like speculation. Like if they didn't show, if they showed a loss one quarter, then Apple would just nix it, take over and work <laughs> it into iWork or something. <laughs> kind of ruin the magic of it. But it is it's very well done cross platform stuff. So it it would be pretty devastating to lose. Anyway, that was a weird oh, digression. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, it's interesting so, for me anyway, maybe not for listeners. We were talking about the different ways that we learn, but Joe and I have also on the podcast previously talked about the different ways that we use white noise. Mm-hmm. Um, I use it for sleep. Joe uses it during work for focus. Mm-hmm. How do you use white noise or in more specifically at this point, probably dark noise? <laughs> yeah. So th- that's actually an interesting thing because I, I never used it before. Um, but then my wife always ran a fan and then she started using a white noise app. I don't, who knows when. Um, so whenever we got married, like I was used to having a fan and some sort of white noise going all of the time. And then whenever we had kids, um, we went down the rabbit hole of like trying a whole bunch, uh, that we could use either on little machines that we would have or old Android phones or Spotify or whatever, um, but because I had kind of gotten used to it, I realized that like on a night, if my wife was gone or if I was like uh, sleeping in the basement or something, cause I stayed up late and I didn't want to disturb her. I realized like I had gotten so used to it that I kind of needed it now to sleep. Um, and so that's actually the only reason I had it on my phone and I had never used it before for work or anything like that. It wasn't until I started that the beta period and got a pretty decent sized beta group that I realized mm-hmm. Possibly the majority, if not close to, of people are actually using it to help focus on work. Um, And so I've actually sort of inadvertently started using it for work because I'm testing the app out while I'm at a coffee shop or something. And I'll start playing something and then I'll go back to Xcode and realize I've been listening to, you know, uh, jackhammer construction in the background for like 15 (laughs) minutes. And weirdly, that somehow worked and like it just kind of sits in the background and I don't think about it, but it sort of pushes the outside world out. I guess that's why I, to be honest, I don't really know the like uh, scientific mechanics of, of everything other than it's blocking out the sound around me, but it seems to be more than just plain white noise. Having certain types of sounds can trigger mm-hmm. different sorts of focus for me. Hmm. Yeah. For me, it's, I use it particularly the brown noise and I use a timer when I want to kind of hyper-focus on something for an hour or so. So I'll start the timer and just kind of, there's just something about it that just kind of draws my mind into what I'm doing. And if I just left it going, I would probably never come out of that state until I get really hungry. <laughs> but having the timer run out is kind of a, a subtle way of like, okay, you can stop that now. Yeah, um, there's a there's a Mac developer who reached out to me recently that, he's building a Pomodoro app and he's trying to integrate 
different ambient noise sounds into that app. Um, yeah, and it's early beta cool. and stuff still, but I, I never thought of that, but that makes sense. Like using it combined with a timer to sort of like force a chunk of focused work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also use it in a couple of silly ways. So I was at a coffee shop the other day with a friend and we were chatting, but there was no one else there. So there was no ambient coffee shop sound. <laughs> so I turned off <laughs> the coffee shop sound. That's awesome. I was looking at, at dark noise and some of the other sounds because I almost exclusively use brown noise and I found the human snoring noise <laughs> and immediately recoiled because that sounds like the worst possible case for me. But I could imagine somebody who's used to sleeping next to somebody else who needs that noise next to them. Yeah, that was a that was a specific my... user request uh, exactly for that reason. <laughs> And uh, you're not the first person who's been repulsed by that. I've actually had not one uh, feature request from people to add the ability to hide noises because they don't want to ever accidentally hit that button. (laughs) (laughs) So I think my favorite use of it so far, though, is, well, to frame this, I'm really into virtual reality. I really like VR gaming. I like VR apps in general. But the most immersive gaming experience I've ever had in my life is using brown noise while playing desert golfing on my phone (laughs) because I can just completely focus into that totally abstract world with like three colors and just a constant noise. And it's amazing how much more immersive something that simple is when there's just nothing else. Like there's just no other sense input coming in as compared to VR. Huh. But yeah, you could probably like, I don't know, that's as close as I can get to like a sensory deprivation tank from home. <laughs> yeah. Although it's almost like, it's like the opposite. Like yeah. you're forcing certain senses to block everything else out. But I guess it's because it's an even sound. Mm-hmm. It's like you're getting no new input. So your brain just sort of filters everything else out. Yeah. And it's the most boring but fascinating game on iOS. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw you I tweeting just... about it the other day. Yeah, I was. I think it was ninety nine cents or one ninety nine, and it's. I probably spent more hours in that game than any PlayStation or Nintendo Switch game that I have. It's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> it's like, uh, do you remember the like endless sand games that were popular in? They were in like Flash, and eventually they moved to like HTML five apps. Uh, but it was basically like you could just draw little boxes inside of this canvas and they would generate sand that would fall to the ground. <laughs> have you yeah, never seen these? Really. It was like a huge slew of apps. I, for whatever reason, I have a weird fascination with like physics-based stuff. And so these little like yeah. physics toy web apps, I would I probably have spent just as much time as that as I did in like Zelda Breath of the Wild or something like that because... Yeah, it's just this like mind mindless, I guess is the right word, but yeah, it's like it's like a fidget toy almost. Mm-hmm. Joe uh laughed at me at one point because when I started making my first VR game, pretty much the second or third thing I put on the screen was a singularity so that I could <laughs> throw boxes at these little tiny black holes and things would go into orbit and swing around in weird ways and it's just endless fun of just lobbing things into weird shaped gravity fields well so mm-hmm. what were you developing on uh unity 
Uh, sorry, what like platform? Like for the Vive or Oculus? Oh, or... Uh, at the time it was the Vive. Okay. I not to derail this because uh, <laughs> I know this isn't really what the podcast is about, but I you're talking to the right. Guys. I was about to say, yeah. like VR is a thing that I've had one brief experience with, uh, like three or four years ago, and I thought it was amazing, but I have not yet like found my track for like getting into it because I'm not I'm not into gaming enough to invest in like a gaming PC and so like I don't want to go that route but then the the less immersive the ones without tracking and everything don't interest me the same way. So mm-hmm. actually based on a conversation with you recently Joe I I think the Oculus Quest is probably the right answer for me but I haven't really I haven't pulled the trigger on it yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we did an episode on this or a segment on this a couple of weeks ago. Um, so I'll see if I can dig that up and put it in the show notes. So, and I kind of talked over the basically all phases of VR, rather than like the the mobile phone version, the Oculus oh, Go type cool. stuff, and yeah, then send that PC to me. stuff on the high end. And then there's also the the Quest sitting in the middle. And the Quest is probably the answer for most people, but definitely go try it before you buy it. Um, see if there's a Best Buy nearby or a micro center and put it on your head and see if you like it. That makes it, sense. In terms of VR, it's pretty good, but some people find the headset itself to be physically uncomfortable. There's been a lot of people modding it. So it really just depends a lot on your head shape and how it, it sits on your head. Because um, what you don't want to do is spend $400 on something that you just don't use because it hurts your face or hurts your head. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. But it's been a pretty good platform. It's kind of a, it's a closed platform, kind of like iOS. So they're heavily, it, it's actually much more curated than iOS. Like you can't just make an Oculus developer account and upload your own stuff like you can on Go and Rift. You've got to go through this application process and they're pretty heavily curating it for quality. It's so, like a, it's like a console. Yeah, it really is. And like I said, it's been pretty good. I've got the, the Quest and the Go, and I think I still spend more time in the Go, but that's just because I'm a lazy person. Interesting. But I do play a lot of Beat Saber in the Quest <laughs> and some games like that. Beat Saber is just so incredibly fun. Yeah, that seems like that's the killer app for VR right now. Although I have to admit, uh, and this is a notch against the Quest, No Man's Sky, uh, mm-hmm. having that in VR does sound pretty incredible. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we better get off of VR. Yeah. That's all I, talk yeah. About. <laughs> I had the opportunity. We'll quite, ha- we'll quite happily talk about VR for the next four hours. Well, I guess this kind of ties into VR, though. Um, so I'm interested in how you made the sounds for the app, if you're allowed to talk about that. Or if that's a secret. I don't know. Yeah, no. Basically, nothing I do is a secret. Okay. The reason I was interested is because I wanted to make basically my own private cone of silence. Uh, using a VR headset. And I have a version of this now where it's basically, uh, imagine going into Blender, making an isosphere, inverting the normals and giving it a material, then sticking that in a game engine with a couple of animations and a couple of sound emitters. And I just put some brown noise and gray noise emitters in there and a toggle to switch back and forth. So I'd basically have this abstract environment that I could just plop on my head anytime I want to think. So it's basically my thinking cap. <laughs> um, so, and I thought about turning that into a product, but I was having trouble finding good ways to generate the noise. I could generate it in Unity and destroy the battery in a couple minutes. 
or I could use recordings, but I couldn't find a good way to, of doing any kind of looping. So I was wondering, like, how did you approach sound? Are the I have no idea. Like, so I have no conception of what those files are on the device. So I can answer the question for me, and then I I can make a guess for what actually might make sense for you. So okay. in my case, uh, like app size is kind of a big deal because I wanted all these to be uh, available offline. And like I said previously, mm -hmm. I didn't want to set up servers or anything, at least not yet. Um, so mine are all audio recordings that are either actual recordings that I made uh, or generated in Adobe Audition or their uh, public domain sounds that I've gotten. There's a okay. lot of free public domain sounds. Uh, the website that I use most of the time is freesound.org, which lets you okay. filter res results to ones that are sounds that have been committed to the public domain. Um, so, and then those, those are pretty heavily compressed. Uh, most of them, I compressed them down to only be mono just to keep the size small. A couple of them, mm -hmm. because they're more like um, atmospheres, I, there's a couple of them that are in stereo. And I've had quite a bit, a few requests for stereo sound, so I might, I might tweak that in the future here. But either way, for me, everything is sort of based around keeping things small. Um, there's a lot of pain that comes from trying to loop uh, compressed audio, and yeah, yeah. There, were, I had a big long tweet storm about that, and uh, I can send you a link, and you can put it in the show notes if anybody's interested. I won't go into it here, but okay. depending on the thing that's playing different types of sounds are or sorry depending on what you're used to playing the audio that player might be smart enough to properly loop certain sounds or certain audio files seamlessly so mm -hmm. i believe in the case of unity and i only know this because of the ridiculous amount of googling i was doing um, i believe unity can actually loop og files ogg files okay um but I, you know, I haven't actually tried it, so I'm not positive on that. But probably in your case, just using uncompressed sounds is probably the best way to go. So just a plain wave file or something like that. Because um, mm -hmm. then you'll be able to loop everything completely seamlessly and you shouldn't have any problems. And size isn't nearly as big of a deal for like a game or something like that. Um, yeah. And then there's a lot of different ways to generate the sounds. Like I have Adobe Audition and there's literally a generate noise function where you can pick from the different uh the different <laughs> algorithms so all of mine are literally just generated through their algorithm and that's it nice why didn't you just use the make noise button joe <laughs> shut up dave i think dave is poking fun because i said it's not like there's just a make noise button <laughs> <laughs> yep basically basically uh for those there is at least in adobe audition i should really audition is one of those programs i need to spend more time poking around in like i use it to edit the show but i i use the three or four tools that i use and then export and everything else to just kind of chaos kind of like what we were talking about with x with xcode of like until you use it or you see somebody else use it it's just kind of visual noise on the screen yeah yeah audition is definitely super powerful but it's not exactly the prettiest or easiest to sort of come in blind on mm-hmm yeah, it's a lot of Adobe's apps, unfortunately. Yes, super, super powerful, comparing. but uh, yeah, not it, it doesn't age well necessarily. Yeah, I was comparing Illustrator to Sketch a while back, and it's just Illustrator may be more powerful in some respects, but 
sketch has labels on the buttons and <laughs> tells you what to do like it's just such a big difference for someone like me yeah i will say i i don't think that's necessarily a fair comparison it'd be more like a uh, sketch to adobe xd yeah and xd is actually that's that's what i ended up using for all of my uh my mock-ups and then i ended up using it for all of my promotional material which was the first time i've ever tried using something like that and i found it to be incredible like i i don't actually use sketch so i can't really do the comparison there but compared to other adobe tools xd clearly is built in this sort of new adobe world compared yeah. to their other tools and so i i was actually really impressed with it both in speed and in like usability yeah i need to spend some time with that too so how did you make that awesome little video that you made ha. so uh like i said i've been an after effects obsessed person for a long time so i used after effects with the uh amazing element 3d plugin by video copilot and that okay. lets you pull in um that lets you pull in 3d uh models and render it with like native after effects cameras and stuff and it's using OpenGL and a bunch of um like sort of video game based technologies to mm -hmm. make everything super fast and i I I love it. It's a program that I've used a lot in the past. And so I could do that pretty quickly. I wouldn't necessarily recommend uh, somebody who doesn't already know that go that route. I think something like the Rotato, if you've ever heard of that, that's like a Mac app that really quickly you can, like they already have models baked in for the iPhone and for Macs and a couple other devices. And you can like throw images or videos, uh, screenshots at it, and it will render it onto a 3D thing and then you can do some animations and stuff with it. That seems like that's the better route for somebody who doesn't already, like we said, Adobe products are not exactly the easiest to learn. And unless you really want to learn After Effects, uh, that's probably a crazy route to go down if you're just wanting to make a video like that. Yeah. It'd probably be better off just uh, hiring somebody to do it. Yeah, well, that's true too. Um, I think for indie devs, though, that's not always you. an option. <laughs> It could be your side side business making videos for other devs. Yes, uh, yeah, I've definitely had that thought uh, after I released that, and a lot of people have asked me about it. I'm like, you know, that would be pretty fun to just make these all day. Mm -hmm. Nice distraction between app updates and stuff. Yeah, and my real job and family. And <laughs> so, what was the most challenging part of the whole thing? Was it just the the initial learning, or was there a specific like? technical element that you beat your head against for two months so i mean the the initial learning was hard it was a little harder than i expected because i've transitioned to a lot of different programming languages throughout my seven year career eight year career however long i've been doing this um but jumping over to swift and into the apple ecosystem of software development it was a lot Ooh. bigger of a leap than i was expecting it seems like Everything's just a lot more different than going from, you know, C sharp to Java to Ruby or something right. like that. It just has a different way of thinking about the world. And that took a little while to get used to. Um, and then I think the other big thing is like, I am not a designer, like as much as I want to be, that's just, it's not necessarily a thing that I'm super strong at. And so it took me a really, really long time to figure out how to make the app feel good in terms of how it physically looked 
Like, I think I'm pretty decent at the user experience part, you know, in terms of how things feel um, and getting motion and stuff like that right. But the actual graphics themselves, um, I I just released a a post explaining my process of the design. And you can see some of those early designs I made. It is is pretty ugly. Uh, (laughs) And those were not wireframes. Like, that was like... (laughs) <laughs> oh, I think this is what I think this is what it'll look like. Like this will be good. It's like super focused and everything like that. And looking back on it, it's like, oh my gosh, I'm so glad I spent more time on that. So I I think that was a thing that hard is the best word. Like I just spent a lot of time on it because it's not a thing that I'm naturally very good at. So one thing that is kind of bugged me about working with Apple stuff, and I've not I've not really done any C sharp development professionally, but I've done enough C-sharp in Unity that I got really spoiled with Unity and Microsoft's incredible documentation. And then you come over and look at Apple's developer documentation and it's just wretchedly terrible. (laughs) I don't know how to cope with it sometimes where it's like, I want to go find out how to use a particular class or method and there's just nothing. It's just, here's the signature of it. That's all we have to say about this. And you, you just don't see that in the other platforms. It's just very fleshed out examples and exactly what it's supposed to do. It's usually written in prose, not in technical jargon. Like, it, I don't know. That, this other stuff kind of spoiled me when I came back to Swift earlier this year. It was just kind of, particularly with Swift UI, because it's still on flux and there is no documentation. Every, every page is just a link to the signature of the function or the <laughs> class. Well, I can tell you as someone who did uh, Windows phone development and universal web apps as they eventually, or whatever they're called, UWP apps as they're called now, um, Microsoft is definitely just as guilty of that, if not if not more so. Uh, really? Oh, yeah. I don't know if it's called this still anymore, but MSDN used to be their, like their mm-hmm. documentation sort of platform. I think they rebranded it or something recently, but it was, it was pretty wretched and like... One thing that Apple does that's kind of incredible, I feel like, is the amount of frameworks that they supply to developers. Maybe it's really that it's mm-hmm. just different. Like Microsoft probably has more in-depth um, framework support for stuff like servers and web architectures and stuff like that. But then, you know, I was used to having that. But then coming over to the Swift world, the access to like um, frameworks for manipulating like images or um or sound or like a lot of those media related kind of things apple's is so much richer than microsoft's microsoft's was frequently you know well you can try to do this but at the end of the day you're just gonna have to like end up in some sort of c application or c uh based framework that's super super old and you're gonna be writing your own you know mp3 compressor or something like that because we don't support that feature or whatever um and it seems like apple's stuff is a lot more a lot more updated in that world. But but now, I mean, I'm thinking this out loud. This isn't a fully formed thought, but I'm wondering if it's really more of a focus thing. Um, if you're trying to do, you know, server-side Swift, I bet you you're going to be in a pretty big world of hurt in terms of the support <laughs> that you're expecting compared to, you know, .NET or something like that. Yeah. And, and generally, I found that with Microsoft stuff, if it's something common they'll have a couple of pages on how to manipulate this thing and work with it. Like, oh, I need to add and delete items from a list. There's a 
five page thing that's practically a blog post with multiple versions of sample code in multiple languages. Here's how this works and here's all the things that you can send and receive from it. But if you get into something really weird, like, okay, what does this exact tiny function do? And it's not very common, but it looks like the thing I want. And that one will just link to here's the signature. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. And you know, another thing uh, kind of based on what we were talking about earlier is the ecosystem around um, the iOS stacks, like Swift by Sundale and Ray Winderlich and NS mm-hmm. Hipster and stuff like that. Those are incredible coming from the Microsoft world. Like, yeah, it blew my mind whenever I found, uh, you know, some article explaining a framework that I needed to work with. And I was like, okay, this is like three years old. We'll see how this goes. And then you notice up at the top, it's like, this article was updated, you know, three months ago with the uh, Swift 5. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> they go back through and they update the posts? Like, I have never, I literally haven't even heard of that as a thing. <laughs> I'm yeah. used to like, all right, this is .NET 4, so that means that they're going to be using, you know, they're not going to be using async await, and so I need to translate this. And that that really genuinely blew my mind. And maybe that's a reaction to Apple's documentation not being good enough or something about sort of the, the culty uh, world that they've built around their developer stack. But that has been incredible, I, I feel like. I mean, the paranoid part of me thinks that Initially, Apple just had kind of crappy documentation and other people started filling in the gaps. But then the cynical part of me says that someone at Apple said, why would we waste our time and money doing this ourselves when people will do it for free on the internet? (laughs) And that's kind of what I feel like has happened. Particularly with Swift UI, like you can't look up anything in Swift UI without going to hacking with Swift. You're going to end up on hacking with Swift, not on Apple's documentation because he has documentation. He has explained all this stuff and Apple hasn't. Yeah, that is just, wild. Yeah. You'd think they would be hiring those people to put the exact same yeah. type of content out. Yeah. Or at least, you know, sponsoring them from time to time or thanking yeah. them. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's something that Unity started doing with some of the more popular tutorial writers is doing sponsored courses with them. And, you know, particularly uh, there's a guy named Brackies who does really good YouTube videos and they worked with him to do a bunch of sponsored videos about new features. There was another guy who did really in-depth tutorials on specific features, and they basically paid for the development of a course to put it on places like Skillshare or uh, Plurals, something, stuff like that. And I don't know, they seem much more interested in partnering up with people outside of their company than Apple does. Yeah, I wonder if this is just a case of they've been they have it already, so they don't need to do the work. Whereas, you know, mm-hmm. other platforms feel like they need to do do the work. But then it makes you wonder, like, could it be even better if they did? So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's also a different business, though. Like, Unity's in the business of selling a software development package. That's where true. Apple's not necessarily in the business of selling Xcode in the same way. Yeah, for now. We'll we'll see if they're uh, <laughs> really going to push that services revenue up. <laughs> Oh, I, 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 that is a joke. I hope, uh, I hope we will never go back and reference that piece of audio. (laughs) Xcode plus coming 2020. I, I'm old enough to remember when development environments were very, very expensive. I mean, just a couple of years ago, Unity and Unreal were still thousands of dollars to get into. Uh Like there was a, a blog post about 
from Brianna Wu recently talking about you know spending thirty thousand dollars for the version of Unreal Engine that they needed to make their game for iOS, and now we just we just create an account and download it. Yeah, that's wild. <laughs> I mean, the same goes for like Visual Studio too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Dave ran into that earlier this year. There's one feature that I need that's only available in Pro, uh, or actually Enterprise. Yeah, that's a big leap. <laughs> yes, it's a very big. <laughs> it'll it, it'll get me uh, Office 365 for free or included. Ooh, what a deal, goody. <laughs> so uh, the app's out. How's the reception been? Very, very good. Uh, <laughs> way. I mean, when I started this, I was my goal was to. Uh, make sure I made enough to pay off the developer account. Um, and I, I think I ha- achieved that relatively quickly. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. It's been, honestly, it's been like incredible. I've gotten a very good reception in terms of actual numbers, uh, which I've been like trying to post and tweet out. Um, but also just in like the way people are talking about it makes me incredibly happy. Uh, I don't know if you saw that Mac Stories article that they did. Um, mm-hmm. I guess you could call it a review or whatever. That was like, one, it was like a dream come true to even get mentioned by Mac Stories because mm-hmm. to me, they're sort of the like taste makers for craftsmanship in apps, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, definitely. But to get like a big, long feature that was pretty glowing, at least from my perspective, I I was overjoyed from that. And then... I've gotten just a really, really good reaction from everybody. People seem to really like it a lot. So that's been, that's been really, really crazy. And I've, yeah, I've enjoyed it. I I mentioned way at the beginning, how, how clean and attractive and how it, it, the the app is and how it looked like you had spent a lot of time and lavished some love and attention to achieve that thing. And this is a market where people will notice that. Right. Mm -hmm. They, they like, if you just, if you just made another white noise app, you would not have gotten this response. This is a direct feedback from making it obvious from the first launch that you really spent a lot of time making this app. Yeah. And I, that is, that's a good point. Cause it's like, there's definitely people that enjoy the actual noises themselves and the fact that they can get, you know, more focus or whatever done, but it's not like I invented anything new in terms of playing white noise in the background while you work. Like there's a million of them like that out there, but yeah, it is really cool that this market in particular can appreciate something that was just uh, sort of toiled over for a long time for the sake of toiling over it, even though it's, it's really doesn't get the actual job done any better. I mean, maybe a little bit in terms Mm -hmm. of speed or whatever like that, but for the most part, it's mostly just a prettier looking version of things that already exist out there. Um, plus Siri shortcuts and some of those things that I knew people would like, but yeah, that, that is definitely something that's really cool. And that's a thing that um, I didn't really feel back in my, whenever I was on Android, um, there was a lot of apps and a lot of really good apps out there, but that same focus on like obsessive polish, that's a Ooh. thing that I've, I've turned, it turns out I've really, really enjoyed about, the sort of indie app world in iOS. And that's probably why I spent so much time doing it was because there's all these other apps that I've really enjoyed and I wanted to kind of emulate them. Yeah, so question for you, Dave. 
Which, um, uh, which custom icon did you go for? Uh, I haven't delved in yet. Okay. I, um, I downloaded the app Thursday. Uh, so when I'm at home, and again, I only use it for sleeping, I have a plug-into-the-wall white noise generator box that just sits by my bed because I disliked most of the other apps that were out there. And so I usually only use an app when I'm traveling. But I had a road trip this weekend, so I was using it every night while sleeping because I was in a strange house with strange noises and weird little dogs. <laughs> and it's like, just make all that go away. Make it sound like my room. Um, well, there's one what, There's one in particular you, I think you'll like called Unintentional Noise App. You can probably guess what that looks like. Well, now I got to go uh, look. I'm currently using the six colors one because of the obvious return of colors. Oh, yeah. See you next week. But yeah, the, it's it's kind of a, it's kind of depressing how many of these podcasts I listen to. <laughs> yeah, it, it was one of those things that uh, started as a small Easter egg and then spiraled into uh, me making way more icons than probably make any <laughs> sense. Um, what was first, the weird fish one? Uh, the first one was Mike was right, hashtag Mike was right. Okay. And that was because uh, underscore David Smith came out with an app called Calzones. I don't know if you saw that. Um, mm -hmm. and it's like a, it's like a calendar app based on time zone conversion and stuff like that. And Mike Hurley had helped him out, uh, with kind of getting the ball rolling and helping him get a feature set nailed down. And so he made, I think he made a theme for it called hashtag Mike was right. Just sort of as a call out tribute, you know, thank you, whatever kind of thing. And I was like, you know what? That would be kind of cool because I love Cortex, the, the podcast he does with mm -hmm. CGP gray and, it's made a huge difference in how I do side projects. Um, and so I kind of wanted to call that out. I was like, oh, that'd be kind of a fun little Easter egg. And so I was like, I'll make a Mike was right thing too. But then I was like, oh, but I got to get a Cortex specific one in there too. And then I was like, oh, I should probably put one in there for uh, connected and make it like a deep inside joke and see if anybody gets it. <laughs> and that one kind of blew up on Twitter. Um, yeah. Which I think is how I got a lot of the attention that I got actually. And and once that happened, then I got like sort of hooked on it. And so I made a whole bunch. I limited myself. I, I feel like I did a pretty decent job of, I only put ones in there that were podcasts that I specifically love myself. Uh, Cause there was definitely a temptation to kind of try to get like super popular people to see if they could like, they would find it and retweet it themselves or something like that. But I really wanted it to be a sort of a tribute to a bunch of work that I personally really enjoyed. So all of those are podcasts yeah. that I personally really love. Yeah, I've been trying to get Dave into Hello Internet for years, but I don't think he's been interested yet. Yeah, it's one of those that if you if it hooks you, it is so good. <laughs> but yeah. if you explain it to somebody, it doesn't make any sense why it would hook you. It it fills the same spot in our generation as Seinfeld did for older people. Yeah, I yeah. Think. It's just a show about nothing. <laughs> But it's a really good show about nothing. <laughs> yeah, with weird commentary on the sort of mundanity of life. And a lot of vexillology. Yes, and a lot of vexillology. Yeah, that yeah, that show has so much uh, overlap with my weird interests. Yeah, for sure. So, uh, the app's out. Getting good uh, press. What's next? You got a bunch of bugs to fix or features to add or is it time to move on to something else and Re put this in yeah, maintenance no, no. mode for a bit? Rewrite the entire thing in Swift UI. Yeah. Go. Yeah. 
<laughs> Start again. Well, I can tell you what's immediately next uh, because at the beginning of this recording, uh, I got I just got an email from Apple asking for uh, promo artwork because they're considering oh, nice. featuring it. So <sighs> nice. I've been I've been doing a very good job. Uh, I think staying focused and not just like shaking in excitement this whole recording. But, uh, <laughs> this is this is our first breaking yeah breaking news. news. Uh, however many days late after this comes out. I mean, this obviously isn't like a guarantee or anything, but just the fact that no. they reached out at all is exciting to me. Um, yeah. But to answer your actual question, uh, I was, I'd set myself up to deal with what I thought would be an onslaught of bugs whenever it kind of hit scale. But uh, mm-hmm. one, I think having a paid app in the store helped keep the actual numbers lower. Cause like, you know, some people who've launched free apps right around the same time as me, they're in massive amount of numbers in terms of users. So uh, that actually seems to have paid off just in the fact that I'm not inundated with weird edge case bugs and stuff like that. So actually last night I uh, got the new Xcode beta and started figuring out the actual iOS 13 build so that I'll at least be ready for that. There's only a couple little features that I'm actually going to add based on that, but I want to make sure I have a, a build that's ready. Like I already have themes and dark mode and stuff like that, but you know, just a couple little things to make sure that that's a good experience once 13 comes out. Um, and then after that, the big thing, which everybody is requesting is the ability to, um, combine noises. So Mm -hmm. like mix and match multiple, multiple noises. I also really want to get in the ability to import your own sound. Um, just cause the looping engine I built will already pretty much take anything in and loop it seamlessly. So might as well have that. And then that will help with the other thing that has been getting a crazy amount of requests, which is like a huge laundry list of specific noises because everybody wants to replicate some specific noise. Like I want the sound of summer cicadas in Japan because that's a thing that I was used to. And now that I am living in, you know, XYZ place, they don't have that exact sound. And it's like this little thing, but it's a thing that's important to them because it has this sort of audio memory attached to it and helps them sleep or relax or whatever. And so I want to get a lot of those in the app itself, but I think if I can give the ability for people to take recordings they have or recordings they find online and put them into the app itself, that would be Hmm. a really good starting point for giving people the ability to get all those sort of extreme uh, specific sounds that people are looking for. So those are those are my two yeah. big ones that I really want to get in. I have no idea how long it'll take, but uh, that's my focus. Yeah, maybe maybe you can subtly encourage the somebody else to make a third party hosted gallery of sounds. Well, I mean that's what freesound.org kind of is. Yeah. Um, it's just a huge amount of sounds that people have uploaded, and honestly, like. I, you know, I'm not like committing to this because I don't know all the legal implications, but I want to take all the sounds that I've made and recorded myself and put them up there as well, because that site helped me a lot. And so I might as well contribute to it myself. Um, but it's every one of them on there is free. Now they all have different licenses. Some of them require just attribution. Some of them are fully public domain. And then some of them are like non-commercial use kind of things. But, uh, mm-hmm. but for people who are wanting to just import it into the app, I think all of them would be fine to download. And there's just a huge amount of sounds in there. 
some of them very, very specific and a lot of them very high quality. So um, there kind of already is a nice gallery where you could download those. Now that I'm thinking about it, I wonder if they have like an API or something. <laughs> that would be that would be something. I was just thinking that too. Interesting. All right, I'm going to open up Trello here. All right, well, I think that's a good place to leave it. Yeah. The app looks great. Thanks for making it. Thanks for letting me beta test it all summer. I officially dropped out of the beta today so I could just get back to normal. I've been beta testing way too much software. <laughs> but uh, I'm really looking forward to installing a stable version of Mac OS. Yeah. Oh, you're on Catalina for the Swift. Yeah, I'm a terrible Ooh, person. That's a rough I'm life. A very, very bad person. <laughs> um, but uh, I'm really looking forward to jumping off of the beta train at full speed. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll put a link to the app in the show notes. And just wanted to thank you again for coming on the show and talking about this. And hopefully you can come back sometime and give us another update with maybe version two or whatever lies in the future. Awesome. Well, thanks for having me. And thanks for uh, beta testing. And you're definitely one of those people that have provided a lot of good feedback and stuff over the summer. So I really, really appreciate that. Yeah, I'll always do what I can. It's kind of a weird hobby of mine to beta test. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, people like you have inspired me to be a way better beta tester because I'm definitely one of those people that I'll be like, oh, yeah, I'll check it out and I'll let you know what I think. But then every bug I see, I'm like, oh, this is beta software. Like, of course it's going to do that. And I just move on. And I'm like, oh, wait, <laughs> the whole reason they're sharing this is because they want to know about these things. So I'm trying, I'm trying to be better about that. Well, great. Well, thanks, Charlie, for coming to talk to us. We really appreciate it. All right, so that was our talk with Charlie. Uh, thanks again, Charlie, for coming on the show. We really appreciate it and wish you all the success in the world. So it's my turn, Dave. I'll be quick since we're Do running it. a little long here. So I started last week on Xcode Vacation and basically spent a whole bunch of time doing nothing. And then Apple released a new version of iOS that is a weird version. It's actually 13.1. And a lot of people have already talked about this. So I'm not going to go into it in too much detail, but it actually fixed a ton of my Swift UI bugs. And that was pretty gratifying. So I decided to cancel my Xcode vacation. And I think it was last Wednesday. I think the update came on Tuesday. And last Wednesday, I wrote more code on Wednesday than I did the previous two weeks combined because I had just gotten around those annoying issues with the modal and was able to actually start making stuff. So I went from having three screens in my app to having like nine completed screens and a bunch of navigation and interaction working. Wow. And then did all that in one day and then the next day decided, you know, vacation sounded pretty good after all. <laughs> so that didn't really get much more done than that. I do it. I did spend some time fixing some stuff and finding some, not necessarily bugs, but some issues with how I'm using core data. I think that the Swift UI slash combine implementation of core data right now is, is really, really basic. And there are a couple of lists that I need to make that take a parent object as kind of a search criteria for that view. But the way that you use the fetch results and fetch request property wrappers in Swift UI 
those are actually loaded before the initial initializer of the view itself. So you can't just pass it the record to use in the criteria. So I need to kind of go back to the drawing board and figure out how I'm going to set up the core data stack and some view models that I can actually instantiate the view with that will load up the core data before the view loads or can do it acceptably after the view loads so I can actually pass the data correctly. But uh, I thought through several ways to do that. I found some good sample code to work from. And then I was perusing the description of the book for uh, Combine, released by Ray Winderlich. And they mentioned they're going to have a section on working with core data. And we're at this point, it's September 3rd. We're getting pretty close to, you know, new iOS versions, new macOS version. And I may just tap the brakes for a couple of weeks and work on some other stuff and wait until Xcode kind of stabilizes and has a real release out before I dive back in. I may still do some other stuff, but for the most part, I think I'm just kind of going to put the project on the back burner for now, maybe pick at it when I need to, but spend some time doing some web development for a customer and got a couple other small projects to do internally and then just continue my extended vacation. Like I have no intention of doing anything useful tomorrow. Um, but there was one other thing in Xcode <laughs> that was just kind of funny. I've been working in SwiftUI all summer and at one point last week, I wanted to go reference something that I had done in the UI kit version of the app. So I, open the project, which hadn't been open in a while. And in order to reason about anything in that app, I had to use storyboards. And it was just an incredibly weird feeling being back in storyboards. It was kind of the feeling that I get when I go to that horrible, sad, small town that I grew up in after I've lived in the city for 15 years. Just like, <laughs> why is anybody here? <laughs> How do you live like this? So even with all of SwiftUI's glaring bugs and lack of documentation, I'll still take it over UI, over uh, storyboards any day. <laughs> but anyway, that's my update. Nice and short. Back to vacation. Okay. What about you? Um, so I got an answer to my Stack Overflow question. Kind of. Kind of. The, the best metaphor I can come up with is, you know, hopping on some discussion board and saying, so I just got a ticket from the cops for not signaling a turn. What am I doing wrong? And somebody responds with, use your turn signal. And my yeah. answer to that is, yeah, but like how? <laughs> like telling me what I'm doing wrong was not actually enough detail because I know I'm doing something wrong and telling me this is the thing that's wrong just didn't get there. Yeah. Um, so, but the guy who responded, we kind of chatted back and forth within that thread and I got most of what I needed. And so it shifted my understanding of kind of the way an antler parser works it's kind of like a whole series of little parsers, <laughs> almost like a tree of parsers. And okay. so you can pop into that tree kind of at any point. So I don't have to say, 
Here is a sample calculation, parse this. If I'm just saying uh, I've got this substitute function, I don't have to test the entire thing. I can just say hand that just to the substitute function parser and make sure that works. Mm. Then all I have to worry about is to make sure that when I hand it, when I hand the whole parser a substitute function, that that also ends up in the substitute area, that it doesn't get caught by some other rule. Um, and so, yeah, lots of little parsers. And then how to ask for specific pieces of information of what came back from the parser. Like how to start walking that tree. Because it makes a tree of data structures to have all the little pieces of what it just parsed out. And so figuring out how to make that work. Because once I can do that, then I could build my unit tests and whatever. And, and so I started adding more parser rules. And I've got all the stuff set up. Like I did the substitute function in the two variants. So FileMaker has a substitute function that says, in this string, replace X with Y. But it also has an alternate model where you say, in this string, replace X with Y and Z with Q, and R with S, all kind of in one big call, rather than having to just chain together multiple substitute functions. And so uh, handling both then gave me the optionals, and it's properly tracking both of those and slicing things up into the right pieces. So that's all awesome. And at that point, that goes like, I, I'm kind of in an R&D mode right now. It's like, how do I accomplish these things? Once I've successfully parsed a couple of standard functions, I stop parsing standard functions. Like, at some point, I have to write the code that knows how to handle all of them. Yeah. All the different variants. But that's just work. Yeah. It requires almost no mental capacity. I just have to sit there with the FileMaker documentation and crank out a couple thousand lines of code. And that's pretty easy, all things considered. Um, so the next big stumbling block, I mean, the, the last huge stumbling block is I have to figure out how to properly handle comments. Mm. Because in the FileMaker calculation engine, effectively, each calculation is really just one big expression. It's a sequence of things separated by operators. Okay, so 1 plus 2 plus substitute blah, ampersand, something else. And so as long as I can handle each of those pieces, all of that works. The problem is, anywhere in that sequence, a comment can be inserted. <laughs> and so, there are tools in Antler to handle that, but I haven't dug into it yet to really figure out how that works. Effectively, what they end up doing is, like, they've got channels. So, you can kind of go, okay, just kind of push that over here. And it still exists in the flow, but not really... And it kind of can ignore it for calculatory purposes or whatever like that. Anyway, I got to dig into antler channels and figure out how that stuff works. Um, and then somewhere in this, I'm trying to figure out like, okay, I'm now successfully parsing in general. What am I going to do with it? 
like the first step was was oh gosh i'm going to need to parse these now i can parse these i can find all the little component bits but how is the rest of my app going to make use of that data yeah like this tree structure of varying kinds of classes of objects is a little complicated and it doesn't really have a query language like that was part of my confusion in the stack overflow thing was i thought the visitor model functioned as a query thing so i could just say okay show me each of the individual things that match this test that was totally not how it worked but what that also means is it doesn't have that query engine so what am i gonna do like I either need to wrap this resultant parsed calculation in my own engine for crawling it and making manipulations because I have to be able to say between version one and version two of this system, this field name changed. So I need to be able to alter the field name back or roll the old one forward and then see if they still match. So I not only need to be able to query into the structure, I need to be able to manipulate the result. And that's going to be a little funky. Yeah. Option two that I've come up with is I can say, well, why don't I use this parsed thing in the big structure? And then there are tools for basically recombining that in a weird way. And so what I can do is I can put it back together into tagged XML. Mm. Which the whole rest of my app knows how to deal with. Yeah. Like the whole problem in the initial case was that FileMaker did not provide tagged XML for this stuff. So I've got it parsed. I should be able to, without a lot of difficulty, put it back together as what I wish FileMaker had given me. Now, it feels a little weird to go slice it all up, put it back together in another format. Now I'm going to dump that into another parser. <laughs> granted, that's a really, really fast parser with tons of, of platform support and things like that. So it, I think in the long run, that's the right answer. It also has the advantage of being a really helpful answer when I get to what happens down the road, which is a new version of FM Perception. Yeah. Um, if I want to give the user the ability to write their own calculation and then have that properly populate the data structure so that FileMaker doesn't look at the XML and go, eh, I need to be able to A, confirm that it's right, but B, I may have to actually rebuild the tagged XML in the way that FileMaker wants it. Um, yeah, I mean, so, in the meantime, you could... Uh use your conversion from the raw calculations into some workable XML, you could kind of sell that to your competitors as well. Hey, I can help <laughs> you with this feature that you can't do yet because I figured it out. Uh, I could. I could, potentially. Um, it, it, the idea did pop to my mind. I, I don't know that they're going to be interested in paying for it, anything approaching the time it took me to do it. Yeah. Um, it would probably be cheaper than doing it themselves. But in general, I think so far the answer from my competitors is that they're going to wait until FileMaker actually starts providing the information that they wanted in the first place. Mm. 
Like, this XML is still kind of in beta. Yeah. We'll just wait for the finished version until FileMaker's done messing with it. There's no real point in building applications around it. I'm the crazy one, not them. So when something is in beta, don't use it yet. <laughs> That's never occurred to me before. You, you and I both are having a, a little bit of difficulty with that concept. Yeah, um, we, should, we should make that a topic for next week. Uh, <laughs> I need to make myself some reminders for next June. <laughs> Definitely. Well, I've, I've found that you either love the process of working with one of Apple's betas, in which case you just kind of keep doing it, or you hate that process and you do it once and you go, wow, that was terrible. I'm going to wait for the full release. I might even wait for the point one. Yeah. Yeah, it's been a pretty rough month or pretty rough summer in general. And the only reason I got into it was because of the Swift UI stuff. But So I don't think iterative improvements next year will necessarily have the same weight that the whole new framework did this year. I think it'll probably be a lot easier and particularly because of the weird, in my opinion, unnecessary tie of having Catalina to use Swift UI, or at least to use the previews, which ended up not even really paying off because the previews are such a pain in the butt when dealing with core data. I ended up just commenting most of them out. So I should be on Mojave anyway. <laughs> but yeah, I've caused myself a world of hurt. But you learned a lot. Yeah. But I, I mean the world of hurt in terms of everything else. Like yeah. currently iCloud doesn't work on this computer. Right. So all of my all of my documents are inaccessible unless I go to beta.icloud and use the file app in the browser to get something. And it's just because of the recent Catalina update last week. It's just like, this is going to stop working now because it's been working all summer and we need it to break, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. So I'm ready for stability again. Anyway, go ahead. Yeah. So anyway, I think in the end, I'll end up converting it to XML, which still feels weird. And I'm kind of poking around the edges of it, seeing if I can come up with a third answer that doesn't feel weird. Yeah. But in the long run, I think it's the right thing. So I'm, I'm, I'm reaching this point. I think we talked about it a couple of weeks ago where like at the beginning, your progress is very, very small. You're kind of pounding away at things and making little bits. But I'm actually putting dents in the wall. And so I didn't make nine new screens this week like you did. But I can see nine new screens and know exactly how they're going to happen mm -hmm. now that I've gotten to that spot. And so I think we're going to see some real acceleration at this point. Here's hoping. Yeah. So what's, what's, uh, what are you doing this week? Um, so this week is, uh, figuring out what to do with comments okay. and anytime my brain capacity is low, uh, adding parsers for, um, other functions and things like that, getting all the FileMaker standard functions built in. And yeah, that will definitely one way or another, I can fill a week with that. Lots and lots of unit tests restructured yeah. my unit test system so like before it was just one big file with 20 unit tests in it and now i'm like okay this is the file that just does unit tests for filemaker standard functions it's all it does 
And then that allowed me to get back to, okay, when I'm working with something new, that happens up here. And then once it becomes part of a class of things, like once the circle in the Venn diagram gets large enough, I can break it off into a separate thing. And so within those unit test structures, I can just test certain sequences, which is neat. Because any of those smaller groupings, I can run independently. I can run a single unit test, run a batch of unit tests, or run all the unit tests. And that's going to be awesome. I, I really, I honestly cannot wait until I've got a thousand unit tests in there. Like the, it's weird. It's a very weird experience to be in a spot where as I write more code, my confidence increases, not decreases. I'd say it's also a weird spot to be in to be excited about writing unit tests. <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's like, it, it, maybe this is a topic for a little later once I've got a bunch of them. But I'm used to, as the thing gets larger and as the thing gets weirder, my overall confidence in how well I'm handling edge cases and how likely it is that some weird data input is going to break something goes up. Mm -hmm. Like it, it's harder and harder to know everything that's going to happen in a large chunk of code. And with the unit tests, I'm like, nope, that's nailed down. If it ever breaks, I will immediately know about it. And so I'm less concerned about it breaking. I know that it, any unit, any, edge case that I have ever considered, I will be able to prove that it works forever. And so more code means more confidence. And I think maybe I'm about to fall in love with this idea. Like, like I understood it conceptually before and was like, that would be really cool. No, dude, it's, it's different. This is kind of crazy. Um, so yeah, let me get a little further into this and then I, I, maybe approaching a religious conversion 